Good morning. Once again, and I know it is August and not February. <laughs> Time has slipped away from me, as you can tell. Um, and so I just want to start by saying, if I have yet to meet you, I am so glad you are here. And I just wanted to give a little backdrop to who I am. Um, I had a baby in April, and so I am still grappling with the reality of being a full-time mom and a full-time pastor, and I have had this date on the calendar um, since February, probably, and, uh, you know, as we joke as all the time, and we say Sunday's always coming, um, August 20th. Eighth, I think it is, is always coming too. And so even though I have known this is the passage, and even though I knew this day was coming, um, God's timing is always really unique. And I just feel really thankful that um, today I'm just going to share from a place of really raw authenticity and vulnerability, um, because that's, that's who I am. Um, and that's just who you get today is, is the raw me. Um, because that's all I can be, actually. So the last two weeks um, have been really difficult for me as I've tried to prepare for today. One, because I'm taking care of a newborn, and then on the other side, I was recovering from COVID. And so my mind has felt the, the COVID fog, or maybe the brain mom fog. I don't know which one it was. But the last two weeks have been so hard for me as I read Psalm 127, as we'll get to in just a moment. And I'm reading commentaries, and I couldn't help but notice that something was just kind of a block. I'd read it, I'd reread it, I'd meditate, I read it in the morning, read it at night, throughout the day, and I just felt like, man, I just keep hitting a roadblock. I do not know what God has for me to share with you. And so as I kept rereading it and rereading it, I started to get pretty anxious and overwhelmed. And that's not an abnormal feeling for me, but it was um, pretty obtrusive. And I started to get pretty worried because I needed to get my study guide out. And as we say, Sunday's always coming. And so this last Wednesday night, it's about 8 p.m. And I'm trying to put my newborn Clark um, to bed and she's crying. Um, and my husband and I are just trying to figure it out like usual. Uh, we tried everything, nothing works, you just keep trying, hopefully she'll fall asleep. Anyways, and then I was thinking, like, I need to get my study guide out. And so I'm, like, writing on my computer, and Chris is trying to rock the baby, and we're like, ah! And then, all of a sudden, I felt like God just reminded me that I needed to stop reading the passage for everyone else. I needed to let God's word speak first and foremost to me so that I can share openly and honestly. Because the truth is, as a pastoral staff, we feel really honored to serve and to lead. But the reality is we're no different than you, and um, we're trying to figure it out too. And so I stopped for a moment and heard these words, which I will read in just a minute. And it felt like no longer was it this nudge that God had given me. It felt like a train was coming right at me. And I needed to either get out of the way or jump on and see what God had in store for me. And so that is my prayer, is that you would jump onto the train this morning, that you would hear from God's gentle nudge and you would really hear God's word for us today. 
So hear these words from Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise up early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born of one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. This is the word of the Lord. So today, as we jump into today's passage, um, we have been journeying in the summer of the Psalms, looking at a variety of different Psalms. And most of the Psalms we've looked at have been authored by a guy named David. And David was a king, and he was credited most of the Psalms. But today's Psalm is credited to his son, Solomon. As many of you may know, David had an inappropriate relationship with a married woman named Bathsheba. And um, she became pregnant, and David tried to hide what he had done. And so he brought her husband back home from the battle, and that didn't work either, so he ended up getting the man killed. But that baby that Bathsheba was pregnant with ended up not living. And David and Bathsheba get pregnant again, and this is with Solomon. So that is the author. That's his story. He maybe had a messy family is what we know. And yet Solomon is set apart by God from the very beginning. Solomon wrote a few other books in the Bible, such as the Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes. But both of these different texts, as well as a couple other Psalms, they're known as wisdom literature in the Bible. And what's important about wisdom literature is that it does not mean it's a guarantee. God is not a slot machine, although I heard slot machines don't work this way either, where you put something in and something automatically comes out. So what we hear in these images that Solomon writes about, it's that he uses these images such as a house or a city or a family, which all have really important scriptural insights, which we'll get to. Um, But we would not lose sight of those images as we look at the breadth of scripture and hear God's heart in this psalm. So Solomon, as he writes, is reflecting on the question of how to be successful in daily life. And he contends that life much less success, can be rightly understood only in light of God's cooperation with our daily lives. This psalm, while only five verses long, can be best understood when we look at it at two chunks. So we'll look at verses one and two, and then we'll look at verses three through five. And if you look in your Bible, it's actually separated that way. It makes it really easy for us to understand. So beginning in verse 1 and 2, we hear God's involvement in our daily lives. We hear, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. So the image shifts very quickly from that of a home to that of a city. But both of the places are there and they provide a place of security. 
The implication is that any human attempt to protect the city remains in vain unless it is God who watches over it. And together, the images of building a house and keeping watch over a city evoke our human preconditions for a good life, the happy and carefree life we all desire, one with family and one with so, uh, security. We all desire these things. But the psalmist continues and says this, in vain you rise up early and you stay up late toiling for food to eat. And so, so far in just two verses, we've heard that word vain three times. And the word vain is not trying to assess the value of the house or of the city, but it is trying to describe the success of the work is contingent only on whether God is involved. If God is not involved in the activity, such activity would remain vain meaning it's deceptive, it's delusional, and ultimately unsuccessful. It is of no accident that the psalmist describes a day where one would wake up very early and stay up late toiling for food, particularly pointing out one's very long workday. Again, the psalmist is not saying that would be bad or wrong, but the psalmist does say that if God is not involved in our efforts, they are futile and fleeting. Ultimately, it is God who provides. Solomon goes on to write that God grants sleep to those he loves. And as a mom of a newborn, that's a hard one. But um, before you get ahead of yourselves, um, whether you're someone who struggles with sleep or maybe gets a very blissful eight hours plus a night, that's not quite what the psalmist is saying. The claim that God grants sleep to those he loves means one could rest knowing that God is always active. In total, human effort alone is not sufficient to create a meaningful life. But when God's involvement interferes with our human effort, the fear of a vain life is now erased. Next, we'll shift to verses 3 through 5, where we are told that children are a heritage from the Lord. And that word heritage in the original language is the same word used in the book of Joshua 50 times when he references the land God has apportioned to the 12 tribes. And so what this psalmist uses with the play on of words is that just as the land was given as a gift, children are given as a gift as well. And not only a gift, but the psalmist continues and says they are a reward. Not a reward due to human effort, but rather they are something that belong to God and given as a gift to steward. Lastly, in verses 4 and 5, Solomon writes how children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Clark is not a good arrow right now, but we'll see if she grows into it. But put in the context of the original language, one can see how these verses suggest how children were not only a gift, but they actually were seen highly due to one's inheritance being able to be passed on, or maybe in this specific case for Solomon, he had some other people on his side in a legal debate because of his children. 
Commentaries agree that Solomon was most likely referencing a specific situation in this passage, um, but we don't get all that context. But what is clear is that um, the psalmist does not say to stop building or to stop guarding or to stop toiling. The psalmist just tells us to recognize our own limitation. We are not God. And we bump into that truth daily, if not hourly. We have all had an experience that has revealed to us our lack of control over life circumstances. In Psalm 127 reminds us that our greatest asset is not our own ability or success. It is putting our lives in the hands of a God who is in total control. And so a couple big things the passage pointed out to me is that one, while we may be compelled to believe that success is contingent upon us, we don't have ultimate control. And instead, we are invited to depend on God. Surely a God who has stretched out the heavens like a canopy is somebody we could put a little bit of trust in. And second, we learn that unless God is part of our work, or probably better phrased, unless we are a part of God's work, our work is in vain. Think of John 15, 15, when Jesus is with his disciples and he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We are called to abide, to remain, to live within. And often in our own hurry and self-reliance, we become convinced that all of life and all of the different successes we may have spring from ourselves. But it takes one quick instant to know that's not really true. As I thought about this psalm and what God may be leading us to this morning, I've thought about a book I've read recently in my own time. It's a book, it's pretty new, and it's called Good and Beautiful and Kind. Three things I would definitely describe God as. He is a good God. He is a beautiful God. He is a kind God. It's written by an author and pastor, Rich Velotis, who is in Queens, New York. And he shares about how we as humans project a false self rather than our true self. And we do this sometimes unintentionally, but as he defines it, the false self is the identity we construct that conceals the true self we find in Christ. So the true self, in contrast is the place within us where we are found securely wrapped in God's love, and we have no need to project or protect it. He goes on to explain that if we accept God's invitation to live as our true selves rather than our false selves, then we have nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and nothing to prove. Go ahead and bring that one up. We can just leave it there, too. These words should be provoking because the reality is 
all of us have things to protect. All of us have things we possess. And all of us feel a need to prove. But let me just get to where he's going when he says we have nothing to protect. In other words, there is no need to cover up your weakness and your failure. We live most of our lives concealing our deficiencies from others. We are trained to put our best foot forward, to make a good first, second, and third impression. And again, none of that is bad, but the problem is sometimes our lives can get so wrapped up with making a good impression that we're not wrapped up in God. Next is, or sorry, excuse me, living with nothing to protect means that I don't need to protect an ideal version of myself. And so for me, that means I'm not going to hide and cover the fact that I can't balance everything perfectly. It is really hard for me to be a mom and to be a full-time pastor. I don't need to hide that. I don't need to cover that. I don't need to show up to a meeting and act like, oh yeah, Clark's happy as can be. She might be, but sometimes it's not that easy. And I have a real hard time protecting a false version of myself. A version I want the world to see, so when they look at me, they think, she's got it together. But this is the thing. This is why we have nothing to protect. When I cover, when I hide, I am covering and hiding God's work in me. When I put on display my insufficiencies, my insecurities, when I show up to a meeting, when I feel like, man, I am really having a hard time, and I tell you that, that gives you the opportunity to see God at work. To one, pray for that thing, but maybe also see that God's strength is at work too, because we all suit up and show up sometimes too. That when we are faced with our own insufficiencies, we are given the opportunity to not hide and cover up. God, God's word invites us to trust that we have nothing to protect. I don't need to protect a false self. Next, he says, we have nothing to possess. Like the Psalter says, we do not own anything. We are simply stewards. We get the opportunity to potentially own property or save for the future, and that's not a bad thing. But even the Psalter says, we can build the house and we can protect the city. And yet, it is God who upholds all of those things. It also means that we don't need to live counting on other people's opinions of what we possess in order to feel good. What we have at the end of the day is never really our own. Our sense of comfort and security is not the focal point of one's lives. And so by being a steward of what we have, it allows us to be radically present with one another. An example of this, as the Psalter says, is even a child. They are a gift, maybe the most precious gift. And we do not possess them. We steward them. We can't take credit for them. 
as much as we want to, or maybe not. (laughs) They're not our own. We steward them. And lastly, he writes that we have nothing to prove. Most of the interpersonal problems we encounter with one another stem from our need to prove ourselves. In a well-known story, you've probably heard it before because it's it's a favorite, is a well-known story about um, Dallas Willard. And he is in a class, and he's a very um, amazing professor, or was, and um, John Ortberg describes a story when they were both in class together. And a student in the class um, makes a comment that was both insulting to Dallas and actually really wrong in the class he was teaching. But instead of correcting him, Dallas gently said, this would be a good place to stop. And the class left. And afterward, John approached Dallas and asked, why why did you let him get away with that? He recounts the story by asking, he thinks he asked the question, why didn't you demolish him? And Dallas replied, I'm simply practicing the discipline of not having the last word. The humble are those that live in the fullness of God, and therefore they have nothing to prove. They have nothing to protect because they're not surprised by their own inconsistencies and contradictions. They have nothing to possess because they've already been possessed by God's love, and therefore the grasping and the clinging of the world is so unnecessary. Imagine with me for a moment a world marked by that kind of humility. We actually have a perfect example of it in Jesus. As we think about Jesus heading to the cross, we see total humility. There is no defensiveness in him. He had nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and nothing to prove. But really, he had everything. And yet, he left it up to God. We see at the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus prays that this cup would be removed from him. And then he says, yet not my will but yours be done. In the crucifixion, his body, nailed to the wood, was an expression of his refusal to vindicate or defend himself. And we are called to be crucified with Christ. Our willingness to lay down every identity that we have constructed to believe we may need to defend We have nothing to protect, nothing to possess, and nothing to prove. Just like the psalmist says in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, we build in vain. Unless the Lord protects the city, we protect in vain. We are to live trusting in the one who will protect us, that has possessed us by calling us his own and has proven himself victorious. And I want to just spend a moment here as we wrap up, giving an opportunity to reflect on something you may feel you need to protect, possess, or prove. 
And I think that the body, um, as Rich Velotis would say, is not a minor prophet, but a major prophet. I think as we use our bodies in worship, that's why we stand, that's why we use our voices, um, because our bodies actually have something to say to us. And they lead us in ways that maybe our hearts have hesitancy to do. And so I want to invite you as we pray um, to just open your hands. And as we do so, this is a posture of surrender. As we lift our hands to God, we're saying, God, you can take what I hold. But not all of us might be ready for that. So it's okay if your hands are a little crap. What's this word? Clasped. Grasped. Grasped. Clenched. Thank you. (laughs) You know, I veered from my notes. That's what happens, you know? It's okay if your hands are a little clenched. Because you know what? Grief stinks. Letting go of the reality of who knows what your kids are going to be taught in school. That's hard. You you want to clench to that. Um, The reality that the world feels so shaky and you might feel like you need to protect it. We all have things we want to grasp. We're not ready to let go of quite yet. My prayer is even with clenched hands as we pray, that you would know that God's hands are right beneath yours. Whatever you clench, God holds. And so if you feel invited to open those hands and surrender that to God, feel the weight of whatever you're holding that you might feel you need to protect, that you might feel you need to protect or or even possess and prove that you would know God's hands are right underneath yours there. So let's take a moment and pray together. Invite you to open your hands and lift them up if you feel inclined. Gracious God, we are so thankful for your word. That it is both living and active. It instructs and informs. But in so you have so graciously invited us a new life in Jesus. God, we pray that you would awaken us now to the things that we are grasping tightly. Whether it's a sickness that we or a loved one is battling, maybe we're just hoping no one would notice the anxiety and the exhaustion we feel each day even rolling out of bed. Maybe we are riddled with worry as our kids head back to school or watch the news. God, our hearts are breaking. And yet we take a moment right now to slowly open our hands and be honest with ourselves and you, with the things we may feel we must protect, we must possess, and we must prove. Would you open our hands now? That we don't surrender these things to a God who doesn't hear us, or we don't surrender these things to just the air God, but we surrender them to you, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and end, the God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us, the God who has promised us eternal life in Jesus Christ. 
And so as we surrender ourselves to you, would we know your hands hold ours? For it is in the strong and steady name of Jesus we pray. Amen.